<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right. Looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Now, rumor has it that tonight at the live Royal Rumble drawing, many of the superstars have uh, made you a marked man. That's a stupid question. Do, do, you, got, do you have a pen? A pen? If you got a pen, give it to me, jackass. Stone Cold Steve Austin ain't a hard person to find, but if you're having a hard time, let me give you a little target. If I'm a marked man, I'll tell anyone that WWF superstars, whoever they are, in my book, ain't nothing but trash. All you got to do is bring your ass out here because Stone Cold has time, his time has come and I will accept no BS from Gorilla Monsoon, no BS from anybody in the Federation office. Steve Austin does what he wants, when he wants. You say I'm a marked man, I say you're full of you know what, and that's the bottom line. Why? Because Stone Cold said so. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. I'm going to tell you all, with a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. Everybody was wondering who the third man was. Marcus, are you going to take me Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is. Look at this. He's your psalms talk about john 316 austin 316 says i just whipped your ass this is the jsc radio retro review 
Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is episode 66, the 66th episode of the People's Podcast, and it's a retro review. This is JSC Radio. How the hell is everyone doing? My name again, J. Scott Smith. Welcome, damn it, welcome, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. This thing is mine, it's all mine, and it feels really damn good to finally get around to doing this. I've been promising you fools this for more than a month. The retro review of the 1998 Royal Rumble. I was supposed to get it to you in January, but extenuating circumstances kind of changed a few things. But now we are in here and we are back. And for the first time since November, I'm hitting you off with some of that good old fashioned problematic goodness from the late 90s. Once again, from what was then known as the World Wrestling Federation. First and foremost, let me get all the housekeeping out of the way. I want to thank each and every one of you who supports me, especially after a week like this, who supports me and supports this show and supports everything I do. I want to thank you for checking out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. I want to shout shout out everybody who supports the mothership, jscottsmith.com. Of course, you can listen to the show directly on the site, or you can go to soundcloud.com slash JSC Radio. You can also hit up iTunes. Simply drop JSC Radio in the search box, and boom, hit subscribe, and you're there. You ain't got to do a damn thing after that. Plus, want to thank those of you all who support the show on Stitcher Radio, supporting the show on Google Play, on Audio Boom, on every single podcast outlet except for Spotify, still working on that. Y'all need to get your shit together and let us in here, damn it. What are you afraid of? You afraid of a little heat hitting Spotify? Because from this point forward, this podcast is going to get a lot more heated. I want to thank y'all again for supporting me. I want to thank y'all for showing love. And uh, yeah, this has been a hell of a week. It's been a crazy-ass week, but for the first time really in this podcast history, we're going to be a lot more unchained and a lot more loose in the coming episodes. But for right now... Episode Seis is the retro review of the 1998 Royal Rumble. Just as I've done on the previous retro reviews, we're going deep. We're digging deep. We're getting right into it. The thing about this series of retro reviews, and really, it started, more or less, it started a year ago when I looked at the 1992 Royal Rumble, including Ric Flair's historic victory, going on to win that Royal Rumble and win the WWF title at the same damn time is that I wanted to take a look at a lot of these pay-per-views with a fresh set of eyes. Because in a lot of these cases, I hadn't watched many of these pay-per-views in at least five years. In the case of SummerSlam 97, it had been about a good 15 years since I'd really watched that whole thing all the way through. In the case of the 1998 Royal Rumble, it had been, I think, almost 20 years, almost the full 20 since I'd actually seen this. And holy hell was this thing ridiculous. It wasn't going to rank up there with the all-time great events, needless to say. But it had a couple of moments that really changed the game. Because this was that weird period in the WWF. You got to understand, the last time I did a retro review was Survivor Series 97. We all know how Survivor Series 97 ended. And 
from that point on to get to the 1998 Royal Rumble, you had to climb through the shitstorm that was the fallout of the Montreal Screwjob. Now, at the end of the last Retro Review, I did go into the night after with Vince doing the whole Brett screwed Brett routine. And we talked about the longstanding aftermath with Brett going to WCW, which was already starting to look like a sinking ship because, of course, they totally screwed up the intro of Brett. When Brett comes in there after punching out Vince and getting screwed out of the belt, how WCW allowed essentially maybe the hottest single guy in wrestling at that point, hotter than anything that pro wrestling had seen in at least a decade, hotter than Hulk Hogan at that point because of the controversy that surrounded him. For WCW to botch what they did and then botch his run there, it's inexcusable, but it also explains why that company went out of business. But meanwhile, in the WWF, they had to cope with the Brett fallout because as I mentioned, and as others have mentioned in different wrestling podcasts, Vince initially thought he was going to come out of this looking like a babyface, even though Bruce Pritchard famously said on something to wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard, that he told Vince that night that, dude, you just became the biggest heel in the business. And he did by a mile. Not long after the Montreal screw job, not long after the infamous Brett screwed Brett interview, Vince decided just to say the hell with it and went on Raw in early December of 97 and decided just to pull the curtain back on what would eventually become the Attitude Era. It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV, daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others, cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox, sitcoms like Seinfeld, and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. However, due to the live nature of Raw and the war zone, we encourage some degree of parental discretion as it relates to the younger audience allowed to stay up late. Other WWF programs on USA, such as Saturday Morning Livewire and Sunday Morning Superstars, where there's a 40% increase in the younger audience, obviously, however, need no such discretion. We are responsible television producers who work hard to bring you this outrageous, wacky, wonderful world known as the WWF. The cure for the common show, comparing WWF to things like Seinfeld and The Simpsons and everything else. They finally just decided to go all in on the Attitude Era shortly after Brett got essentially shoved out the door. But there is still this little minor detail of what do you do with Shawn Michaels now and Triple H, two of the most, well, heat-filled guys you could possibly imagine, are now walking around with a world title that has just got all sorts of controversy tied to it. 
And then there's that little minor detail that in the WWF, they were trying to figure out a way to get that world title from essentially Bret Hart, not to Shawn Michaels, but to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin, by this point, by late 97 into 98, was already the man. This is where it was going. This is where it was headed. He was the man. Austin was taking over as the man, even as Brett and Sean and Vince are going through this Montreal screwjob bullshit. The goal was always to get it back to Austin. So now, in the midst of the fallout of this just shit show that occurred in Montreal, you now have to figure out a way to set the table to get Steve Austin the world title by WrestleMania. Have fun! The whole thing starts... And really, I shouldn't say that because it started prior to the Montreal Screwjob, but a lot of this Royal Rumble is tied together in two things. Steve Austin's drive to win the Royal Rumble, technically for the second straight year, because we all know what happened in 97, the whole he gets thrown out by Brett, but the refs magically don't see him. He jumps in, takes out everybody else in the ring, and then the crazy convoluted thing that eventually led to Montreal and the incredible match at WrestleMania 13 with Brett and, and, and Steve. But... It's to get Steve the Royal Rumble win, and it's to kind of tie up this whole crazy convoluted bow of Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker with the minor detail of this new guy who suddenly floated into the picture during the first Hell in a Cell match. Oh my God, wait a minute, it's Paul Bear! So now Kane is in the picture, and amazingly is still in the picture in some tangential form. But Kane is in the picture now to add another wrinkle to this thing. Kane debuts at the October pay-per-view Hell in a Cell. He had a match during that infamous Survivor Series, but Taker wasn't there because he was recovering, quote-unquote, from being attacked at the end of Hell in a Cell. The crazy shit with Sean happens. In December, you've got Sean versus Ken Shamrock at the Degeneration X pay-per-view, which probably should have been an indicator to Brett that things were not going to go very well for him at the Survivor Series. But you have the DX pay-per-view where he, he beats Ken Shamrock by disqualification or Ken beats him by disqualification. Whatever the case is, Shamrock doesn't win the world title. Sean goes into January with the belt. He's still got this whole leftover issue with Undertaker lingering from Hell in a Cell. And that's how we get our main event of the Royal Rumble, except this time it's a casket match. And Undertaker at that point had never had the best of luck at the Royal Rumble in casket matches. I'll reference that later on in the review. We get to San Jose, California, the Royal Rumble, 1998, first pay-per-view of the new year. First pay-per-view in a year that would eventually become one of the greatest in this company's history. And in terms of head-to-head -head competition, probably the greatest year pro wrestling had ever seen. So without further ado, let's jump in the Wayback Machine and head back to January 18th, 1998, at what was then known as the San Jose Arena, the home of the San Jose Sharks, for the 1998 Royal Rumble. It's 
and no doubt Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to be a marked man here tonight. And one thing I forgot to mention in the entire setup for this is that along the way, Vince McMahon, desperate to, you know, try to get some of the negative press of the whole Brett thing off of him, even though this is kind of an odd way to do it, reached out and was able to sign an appearance from Mike Tyson. You remember Mike Tyson, don't you? This is pre-face tattoo Mike Tyson. This is six months after he bit off Evander Holyfield's ear, Mike Tyson. Yes, that Mike Tyson, the one from the video game Punch-Out, that guy, the one who for about a nice three-year span at the end of the 80s in 1990 was one of the scariest men to ever step in a boxing ring. Well, in, by 1998, he was a bit of an outlaw. But he was also a huge pro wrestling fan. Huge. Like, legit, huge WWF fan. And the WWF, at this point, is still chasing WCW. The NWO is in about a year and a half into its run. And WCW, even though one could argue some of the shows that Raw was putting out were better than the things that Nitro was doing, Nitro was winning in their ratings by just wide margins at times. So, WWF is trying everything they can to generate enough buzz to get them back into this thing. They eventually would, you know, as everyone knows, catch and pass WCW later on in the year, but it still took time because 1997 was the year they got their swagger back. 98 was the year that they just completely took the game back over again. So Tyson was going to be a big part of this. And yes, we'll get to what happened at the end of this thing with Tyson. But Mike Tyson is up in a skybox. And they pan to him in a skybox prior to the first match. Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler are on the call. It's a two-man booth. Remember those days? It's a two-man booth with Ross and Lawler focusing heavy on Austin, heavy on Tyson. And the world title match was kind of seen as almost like a footnote at certain points of this thing, despite the fact that it would be a very big deal, but for different reasons. So we will just get right into this with our first match of the evening. And unlike a lot of the previous retro reviews, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on some of these pay-per-views. Some of these matches I'm just going to skim through because some of them aren't really that important. But I'm going to talk about this match more so because of the spot that ended it rather than the entire story. Our first match of the night, ladies and gentlemen, it's Goldust versus Vader or as he would call himself at the time, the artist formerly known as Goldust. So this thing, as you remember from the Survivor Series review, it goes back to that Team USA versus Team Canada match. You know, when Team Canada had one legit Canadian on it. That match ended with Team Canada winning, due in large part to the just burgeoning issues with Goldust and Vader. Goldust, who was still Goldust at this point before he was going through his very weird kind of BDSM trippy thing that he was having happen to him. I'm thinking this is Goldust on acid at this point. Goldust, who's going by the artist formerly known as, is also brought to the ring by Luna Vachon. And he shows up wearing purple and green Beetlejuice colored tights with a green wig. Again, this all goes back to the Survivor Series deal where Vader slapped the hell out of him and threw him into the ring. Goldust walked out, left Vader to try to finish off Team quote-unquote Canada on his own. He ended up being able to get all the way down to the last guy where the British Bulldog ends up winning. Now, obviously, Bulldog is gone here. Brett's gone. Anvil's gone. Owen's still here. We'll talk about Owen later on in the Royal Rumble. But the fallout from that Survivor Series has left a lot of things a little wonky and a little different. 
And one of those things that's wonky and different is Goldust. Now, this match starts, and they get right after each other. I should also note that Goldust has removed the wig, and he has blue hair under what was a green wig. I don't know why you would go blue hair. It totally clashes with the outfit that he was wearing. I guess it turned out we'd find out later on in the night that he basically came prepared with multiple outfits. Goldust with the blue hair. JR and the King, they're spending more time talking about Austin being a marked man as this thing starts. Because, again, that's the common theme here. This was Steve Austin's night. Regardless of Taker and Sean and everything else, this was Steve Austin's night. This was the beginning, really, of WWF becoming the Steve Austin show. Not the podcast, but, you know, the original, original Steve Austin show. So as they're talking about this, Luna's decided she's going to try to distract Vader to finally get Goldust in control. Vader is just all over. He's all over Dustin at the start of this thing. But he gets control for a little while. And it's it's interesting to note this. Goldust has been in the game a long time. And when you see Goldust still in the ring today, he was just on the Mixed Match Challenge a couple weeks ago with Mandy Rose, where if Goldust were maybe five to eight years younger, they would be a hell of a combination to work with. But Goldust, at this time, in January of 1998, was 28 years old. Goldust wasn't 30. He's 28. You, and obviously, Goldust is in a hell of a lot better shape now. He's been through a lot of things with drugs and alcohol and getting himself clean and everything else. So Goldust, was, he went through it along the way. But Goldust was 28 20 years ago. He's 48 now, and he's arguably in better shape at 48 than he was at 28. Go back and look at that. That's 28-year-old Goldust in the ring rolling around with, with Vader. He was also wearing a gold codpiece, so at least you knew he was still Goldust. Anyway, as we roll through here, Vader makes his first attempt at a Vader bomb and gets hit with a low blow. Goldust is out here like an absolute bumping machine. Vader avoids the sunset flip and then drops down and sits on Goldust. And considering what I've heard about Vader, that had to be an awful experience for, for Goldust, and not just because Vader was 400 pounds. And by that point, Goldust is ready to be finished off. So Vader drags him over to the corner. And here's the reason I even brought this match up on this review to begin with. Oh, my gosh. Look at this. Look. Luna, Rob Redfrey not going to disqualify Yes, you heard Ross correctly. Vader goes up to the top rope, or at least the second rope, to set up for the Vader bomb. Luna jumps into the ring and immediately pounces on Vader's back, wrapping her arms around his neck, trying to basically pull him off the ropes. Referee Jack Doan was about to disqualify them, but instead he held off. Vader stays on the second rope, lunges off with the Vader bomb, hits Goldust with the Vader bomb while Luna is on his back. Luna bounces off, taking a pretty ugly bump on the way out of the ring. Vader gets the pin and the win at 7.51 to open the 1998 Royal Rumble. It was a, it was a decent match. I would say that much. It was not a great match, but it was a hell of a start to that pay-per-view. And the crowd was kind of eh, halfway through it. But when Luna jumped on his back, as you heard the pop there, when Luna jumped on his back and Vader hit the Vader bomb with this woman dangling from his neck, almost like she was trying to ride an elephant or a dinosaur or a hippo on the way down, 
That's what woke the damn crowd up. So Vader gets the win at 751. That's back-to-back years he's gotten a win at the Royal Rumble, having beaten The Undertaker clean in 1997. As we roll through this, Austin now arrives at the building because, of course, you know, you want to arrive five or 15 minutes into the show, naturally. Austin arrives at the building in his stone-cold Chevy pickup. This truck was actually given away later on in the show as a part of a giveaway. It has the Stone Cold logo on the hood. It has Austin 316 on the doors and 100% pure whoop-ass on the back. And there was someone who actually won this truck during this show. Well, Austin, was as they're going to give this truck away, Austin pulls up in the back, jumps out, and here's a familiar name. Michael Cole is waiting to interview Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mr. Austin, what do you think are your... I got nothing to say to you. Just park my damn truck, and if you scratch it, you're going to get your ass whipped. Well, Mr. Austin, what about... Mr. Austin, apparently, uh, heading back to the locker room area, he is in the Royal Rumble match. He is in the San Jose Arena tonight. He is a marked man, however. That's right. So Austin jumps out of the truck, flips Cole the keys, and says, park his... Basically says, park my shit, not realizing, of course, that Cole is there to interview him. And seconds later, the Godwins, covered in Confederate flags, because... Nothing quite says progressive in 1998 like two dudes in Confederate flags, one with a Confederate flag tattoo, the other one wearing a Confederate flag t-shirt. Two things that would never fly on today's WWE television. They came up there chasing after Austin, telling Cole, basically, let us know where he is because we're looking for him. So we continue to roll on into the show, and our next match is not something I'm going to waste any of your time going through in great detail It was the six-man mini tag team match featuring six mini wrestlers, because there's another word that you used to use to describe these guys, but you don't want to use it anymore. And the main highlight of this is that it just found a way to get, get Sonny, Tammy Sitch, a payday, as she was the special guest referee for this thing. It was a lot of silliness, a lot of problematic references, and a lot of really corny short jokes from Lawler. And it went surprisingly longer than you'd think, the winners of the match, Max Mini, Mosaic, and Nova, again at 751. That seems to be like your lucky number on this Royal Rumble. Meanwhile, in the back, the nation of domination, the nation being Farouk, Ron Simmons, Damn. Kama Mustafa, better known as the Godfather, D'Lo Brown, and the newly minted Mark Henry, who just got pledged and crossed into the group. He got his letters not that long beforehand are basically storming the building looking for Stone Cold Steve Austin. I guess I should note that the reason all these guys are so hot and pissed off at Austin is that for the better part of really four or five months, starting after the injury at SummerSlam when he made his return in September, Stone Cold Steve Austin made it a point to basically just show up whenever. Like in the middle of matches, Austin would just roll in from the crowd or the glass would break and he'd storm the ring or these guys would finish a match and then just halfway through the post-match brawl, Austin will just slide on into the ring and just start delivering stunners like Christmas gifts. Well, along the way, everybody from the DOA to the Nation of Domination to Los Boricuas to Ken Shamrock to what was left of the hearts to everybody was getting dropped. Everybody could get everybody could get these stone cold hands in these streets. So the nation is stomping around the building looking for Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Farouk says that it wasn't his idea to let Mark Henry into the group. It was one of the Rock's moves to cross him and get him his letters. But 
he wants Mark Henry to prove himself by beating up Austin. They charge through the door to what they thought was Austin's locker room, only to find an empty room with a foam middle finger sitting on a steel chair. The other member of the nation, the one that wasn't in the locker room stalking Austin, was The Rock. And he was the intercontinental champion on this particular evening. Coming up after this break, we will talk about the Rock's defense of the Intercontinental Championship, plus why the hell Ken Shamrock never ended up being a World Heavyweight Champion, and we'll get more into the Mike Tyson, Steve Austin sweepstakes. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 66th episode of the People's Podcast. It's the retro review of the 1998 Royal Rumble, and this is JSC Radio. We'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free, you can listen anytime, anywhere. Now if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. If you don't have the Stitcher app, simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. I'm here with the WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Rock. We're going to speak with The Rock in just a moment. But first, if you missed the free-for-all, we're going to take you back and show you what happened. Now, my colleague Kevin Kelly was backstage interviewing the Nation of Domination. Now, each member of the nation, including The Rock, said that they would indeed win the Royal Rumble match. Obviously, a bit of dissension in the nation of domination, a little argument ensuing, and Rock, uh, obviously, dissension within the ranks of the nation. Obviously, according to your comments, you're a complete idiot. But hey, before the Rockets and anything, I know all the Rock's fans want to know exactly how the Rock feels about President Clinton and Paula Jones. Hey, hey, Press, take some advice from the Rock. When you lay down with a dog, you're going to wake up with fleas. Hey, man, don't be silly. You got to cover it, Willie. Hey, but anyway, the fact of the matter is this. Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. One-on-one, as you can see, The Rock stands alone exactly how you want it and exactly how The Rock likes it. So one-on-one, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, against the people's champ, the intercontinental champion, The Rock. But don't worry, Ken Shamrock, somebody will be standing by to carry your sorry ass out of the building. This is the 66th episode of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Welcome back 
to the retro review of the 1998 WWF Royal Rumble. So far, we've talked about many wrestlers and Goldust getting a Vader bomb with a Luna Vachon strapped to a Vader's back and Mike Tyson and Stone Cold Steve Austin's a wanted man. We've had all sorts of fun times in the first part of this podcast. I want to remind y'all once again to hit up the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC radio. I want to shout out everyone who shows love to the mothership, jscottsmith.com. You can listen to the show on there, of course, on many of the other podcast providers and outlets out there, including iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, mentioned them earlier, want to mention them again, Audio Boom and everywhere else you can put JSC Radio into a search engine on a podcast provider. That's where you can hear me. Spotify, damn it, we're coming for you. So, after having gone through all this, we're back at it again. And I mentioned before the break that we had an Intercontinental title match. But prior to the Intercontinental title match, you've got JR and the King talking more about Mike Tyson because he is the other big name amongst everyone that's here. Mike Tyson is currently at this point chilling in a skybox next to Vince and a relatively young Shane McMahon. Now, Shane at this point was actually in his late 20s. I'd always thought Shane was younger than this for the longest. Shane was almost 30 in 1998. So he'd actually been in that family business a long damn time. And Vince and Shane, who's his right-hand man, hanging out and kicking it in the skybox with Tyson as we get ready for our next match, which is for the Intercontinental Championship. If you recall back during the Survivor Series, Steve beat Owen Hart to win the Intercontinental Championship. Now, obviously, everything went kaboom later on that night, and Owen was suddenly way out of the Intercontinental title picture, but that pitted Austin versus Rock. Austin and Rock basically went at each other over the Intercontinental title for a couple of months, including a wild and wacky match at the December pay-per-view that infamously featured D'Lo Brown getting a stunner on top of the Stone Cold pickup truck. And finally, at the end of everything, Austin was supposed to defend the title against Rock. Austin refused, and the belt was literally handed to The Rock. But of course, if we you remember, Steve Austin once tossed the Intercontinental Championship belt into a lake or into a river, excuse me. Well, that was what occurred at this point in time. Rock ends up getting the belt. He's the champ. Austin's off to go chase down the Royal Rumble. But that leaves an opening for the Intercontinental title, and that brings us to Ken Shamrock. Shamrock, if you remember, at back at the Survivor Series, was the sole survivor for his team, and it seemed like he was the guy, along with Austin, who had the rocket ship strapped to his ass on his way up to the top. I've said this over and over again, anybody who'll listen, I've said it repeatedly on these retro reviews since we're talking about stuff dealing with 1997 and now 98. I don't know how Ken Shamrock, who essentially was Kurt Angle before Kurt Angle, how Ken Shamrock came over from UFC, instantly took to being a wrestler, because he had worked briefly as a pro wrestler prior to going in the UFC, but he instantly takes to the game, takes to the business, and he was over like hell how this guy did not have one run, even for one night, as WWF champion. Like, later on this year, he'll win the King of the Ring as well and just never gets that real shot or that real run at being world champion. By the way, the King of the Ring 1998, you know for damn sure that that's going to be picked up in a retro review later on this year. But Ken Shamrock winning the damn world title should have been a no-brainer, but it never happened. Because he came around at a time when Austin was nuclear and The Rock was right behind him. Prior to this match, of course, you have to mention that. Prior to this match, 
Shamrock and the Nation of Domination had themselves a bit of a beef anyway. So when Austin disappeared from the title picture, Shamrock was the perfect guy to slide right back on in there. And it even included on the run-up to this, Shamrock beating D'Lo Brown and getting double-crossed by Mark Henry. That's how Mark got crossed into the organization, quote-unquote. Well, now we've reached the Royal Rumble. And prior to this match, Michael Cole is interviewing the man known as, at that point, still Rocky Maivia, albeit he had been calling himself The Rock. He was starting to wear The Rock on his tights, and you could see it. If you go back and watch this Royal Rumble, just watch that interview and watch that promo. Rock wasn't at his full Rock powers yet. He really didn't have his full coming-out party as The Rock until WrestleMania 14. But what he did was that he showed you what he was going to be bringing in the near future. And you think about it, a year from this point, he and Steve Austin would be 1-1A one and with Rock having won the world title later on in the year. He and Austin would be 1-1A one and, one and fully taking off and owning this business. But Cole does the interview, and then needless to say, we head to the ring, and here's Howard Finkel for the intros. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest scheduled for one fall with a one-hour time limit is for the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Championship! We are the nation of About to enter the arena, representing the Nation of Domination, weighing 270 pounds, the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion, the first third-generation athlete. It's time to His opponent up. and challenger from Sacramento, California, weighing 235 pounds, the world's most dangerous man, Ken First title match, as you heard there, The Rock was the guy out first. You know I've got this thing about champions coming out first. The champ should always come out last. But since it's a heel champ, they had him come out first. And then right behind him was the challenger, Shamrock, who, as you heard, the reaction. And yeah, part of that does play into the fact that he was from Northern California and they were in San Jose. But those fans were into Ken Shamrock. It didn't make a difference if he was in San Jose or San Francisco or New York or in Detroit or in Miami. Ken Shamrock was over like damn Rover, over like crazy. I keep saying it. This would have been a guy to put the world title on, even if you didn't keep it on him, even at those wacky points you would have later on in the year with the belt, how Ken Ken Shamrock did not get at least a turn with the world title. Still makes no sense to me. Meanwhile, on the other side, you've still got massive heat on Rocky because the Rocky sucks chants were probably at their peak here because Rock was still peak heel at this point in time. And he was still referred to during this match as my via because the Rock was still not fully established as his name. And after the early feeling out process, including Rock being bothered by all those Rocky sucks chants, he actually took control on Shamrock. After, after an exchange of near falls, Rock hits a DDT, that spike DDT of his, but he could not get the finish. And it, it's just amazing to me just to see Rock, because he still was not fully at his ability. He had some of the mannerisms down, some of the moves, but again, he was about six to eight months away from being peak Rock 
so to speak. And also during this match, Ross decided he wanted to throw out some not-so-subtle shade to WCW here. Long way from the octagon for that man. Two great young athletes, part of the young foundation. Six. This is not the seniors tour. Young athletes in their prime, and this is quite the contest. I mean, come on, Jim. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk that spicy about these guys, the least you could do is actually at them in the tweet. You can follow him at JR's Barbecue, by the way. And after taking a few shots at WCW, Shamrock fires up on Rock, gets him to beg off, hits a power slam for a very convincing near fall, and Rock ends up sending Shamrock in, gets reversed into a really nasty-looking Frankensteiner. At this point, the nation hits the ring. Shamrock basically jumps on the apron, tries to fight them off, and as he's doing this, behind him, the Rock pulls brass knuckles from his tights. How 1980s Memphis wrestling is that? I absolutely love that detail. And he ends up dropping Shamrock with the knucks while the referee is trying to get the nation out of the ring. In fact, as Shamrock is fighting off the nation, he punches D'Lo, who was trying to come in over the ropes. D'Lo falls and gets hung up by his left foot dangling from the middle and bottom ropes. So the referee and Godfather are trying to get D'Lo out of these ropes. Rock drops Shamrock with the brass knucks that he pulled out of his tights. And then after he drops him, he then takes the brass knuckles and stuffs them into Shamrock's tights. Bro, that's how you know you're really, really, really dedicated to the craft of trying to cheat to win when you're willing to stick your hand into another man's tights to drop off a foreign object that you'd use to knock him out. I wonder how on earth he got the idea that to drop them into Shamrock's tights. You would think a guy, if you were going to punch somebody out with brass knuckles, you would figure you would finish the job off and you wouldn't need to plant the weapon on him. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, for Christ's sake, it's not like this is a cop or something planting weapons on anybody. Anyhow, he plants the knucks on Shamrock, who then kicks out at two. With D'Lo still caught in the ropes, Kyoto runs back over to try to help him get out of there. Shamrock hits a belly-to-belly suplex on Rock, gets the cover. Kyoto spins around, counts one, two, and three for the pin and the win for Ken Shamrock. The Rock used the knocks almost for a, a victory here. They're in Shamrock's tights. D'Lo Brown is hung up there in the ropes. Shamrock, Shamrock, suplex. One, two, three. Oh no, he's got it, he's got it. Shamrock's a champion. That's right, Ken Shamrock gets the pin and the win at 10.52, and he is your new Intercontinental Champion. Ken Shamrock finally wins his first major championship in WWF. Shamrock's up on the rope celebrating, but all of a sudden in the corner, The Rock is pointing at Kyoto and saying that he got hit with a foreign object. You know where this is going. Kyoto goes over to the top rope to try to get Shamrock's attention. Shamrock swats him away like, get the hell out of here. He comes down off the rope. He has the belt in his hand, remember, and has been announced as the champion. Kyoto demands to check him. Shamrock, not really 
you know, understanding what this is about and apparently not feeling the brass knuckles waddling around next to his schwanz in his tights, says, sure. Kyoto checks him, feels something that's hard and apparently a foreign object, tells Shamrock to reach in his tights and pull it out. He does. It's brass knuckles and shenanigans ensue. The Rock, the Rock is telling the referee that he got his jaw jacked by Shamrock. Referee Mike Kyoto. What's Rocky telling him? I don't know. Said to hit him in the jaw. All I know is we got a new Intercontinental Champion. And the winner of this bout, as a result of a disqualification, and still World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion, The Rock, Rookie Mafia! Yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen, we got ourselves a good old-fashioned dusty finish. At 10.52... Ken Shamrock got the pin in the win until the weapon that was planted on him cost him the belt. Kyoto snatches the belt from Shamrock, gives it back to Rock, who then quickly gets the hell out of the ring and absconds with the title. A raging Shamrock is left in there, having just lost to the Rock via a DQ reversal at 10.52. It didn't end well for Mike Kyoto. Shamrock rages out. Hits a belly-to-belly suplex on Kyoto, then puts him in an ankle lock before every referee and official in the back hits the ring to try to break up this, what could have easily been the end of Mike Kyoto at this point. Meanwhile, they pan up to the skybox with Shane and Mike Tyson. Tyson is just livid at this whole thing because he just watched my man get cheated by The Rock. And this is one of those good old-fashioned heat magnet matches. It's one of those things where it's pretty dumb, it's pretty ridiculous, And the odd thing is, Shamrock didn't immediately win the title, like, the next night or the next month at a pay-per-view. Like, you know, what normally happen in a situation like that. A guy gets another shot, and he ends up winning the damn thing, like, the next night or at some other point. This was a case where, no, not, not, not exactly. He eventually would get the Intercontinental title, but it would take a while for him to get the Intercontinental title. So, following a rather dusty end to the Intercontinental Championship match, we then set our sights on our next championship match of the evening for the WWF Tag Team Championships, which will feature the champions, the New Age Outlaws, that would be the Road Dog and Badass Billy Gunn, taking on the Road Warriors, a.k.a. the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal. Now, going on at this time, the Legion of Doom was basically being portrayed as this legendary tag team that might be on its last legs. Hawk and Animal, at that point, had been doing it since the early 80s. They had won everywhere. They had done everything. They'd won in the WWF a few years prior, but now they're older. Hawk doesn't look nearly as dominating as he did at one time. Animal is the workhorse, but he's 
he's struggling, and these new young punks, the new age outlaws, who were a couple of job boys three months earlier, are now the hottest thing since sliced bread in the WWF. And the run-up to this, which included the outlaws winning the tag team titles from the from the uh, from the Road Warriors here, is they basically were going out of their way to play pranks. They stole the Road Warriors' shoulder pads, the iconic spiked shoulder pads. They had harassed them. They had jumped them. They even got help from Shawn Michaels and Triple H, which should do some serious foreshadowing for what would happen after WrestleMania. They did all this, and they showed all this, including shaving half of Hawk's head. They shaved half of Hawk's head and put Animal through an announce table with help from DX. And it also left Hawk foaming at the mouth. That's the entire video package leading up to this. If you're watching along with this, that video package is laying all that all out there. And it is weird to see the Road Warriors because the Road Warriors have spent the better part of a decade being like the super-powered, power-level 9,000, nobody-touches-them-immortal type of team. And now they're out here shaking and quivering and foaming at the mouth on the ground. So we head to the ring for the intros, and out come the New Age Outlaws. And what you will hear was really the start of... Truly one of the most iconic entrances in all of professional wrestling history. Oh, you didn't know? Your ass better call somebody. Because you see, unless you live under a rock or in California, Now, obviously, at this time, Road Dogg and, and Billy Gunn were still kind of working on the whole the whole routine and the whole shtick. And again, this is pre-DX Outlaws. These are just when the Outlaws are just out here freelancing. And a nice touch, I should add, that both of these guys come to the ring wearing Brett Favre jerseys as just a week before the Packers had beaten the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. How wild does that sound these days, by the way? But the Packers had beaten the 49ers in the NFC Championship game, and they were making sure they were getting as much of that heat as they possibly could. The Packers would eventually end up losing the Super Bowl to the Denver Broncos. Everyone remembers John Elway's famous helicopter as he made the run to try to score that touchdown in the Super Bowl. They were out there getting all kinds of heat. Meanwhile, in the back, Michael Cole is talking to the Road Warriors, including Hawk, half-shaven head and all, giving a very screamy promo that everyone who knew the Road Warriors had come to expect and had grown to love. Now, doctors have told me backstage that they did not want you to compete in this matchup this evening. Are those rumors true? Well, let me tell you something first, Michael. There wasn't a chance in hell that I was going to miss this match tonight on Royal Rumble. Now, it ain't a matter of being hurt or what the doctors say. Doctors don't know what they're talking about. It's a matter of having a heart, being a World Wrestling Federation superstar. Sucking it up, not sitting up, and nursing your injuries. Getting your damn butt in the ring and kick yourself butt. New Age Outlaws, you're going down. Whether we become champs or not, you're going to get your butts kicked. Tell them off. Well, you know something, Mikey Cole? These guys, the New Age Outlaws, they think they're as cool as the other side of the pillow. Well, they'll even be cooler when we're done with them tonight because we're going to put them on ice. Yeah, what a rush. So with that, out come the Road Warriors, the iconic tag team that for many of us who grew up in the 80s, this is like the scariest couple of dudes you could ever imagine. But as soon as the match gets going, the outlaws jump them 
but they're quickly overwhelmed. Animal hits a power bomb on Road Dog for an early cover. And after the Outlaws try to leave, because, you know, they already said early in the match, we've had enough of this. They try to take off. They get dragged back in the ring and beaten some more. Road Dog's bleeding from the mouth early. Like, this thing was working pretty stiff-ski as we got going in this thing. Hawk and Billy tag in, but the beating continues as the Outlaws finally will get control when they get Animal to the outside and work on his injured back. Because that was another key in this thing, is that Animal was working a back injury after getting put through the table on Monday Night Raw a few weeks earlier. So while Animal is outside and they work him over, Hawk is able to hold them off momentarily, then misses a dive at Road Dog, hitting the ring post. Hitting the ring post seems to be a big trope these days in WWE, particularly on Monday Night Raw, where everybody, hell, at this year's Royal Rumble, seven or eight different dudes are just hitting ring posts left and right. It's like the damn thing was like setting a pick on you in a basketball game. But Hawk hits the post, Road Dog then runs to the other side of the ring. He had to scramble all the way to the other side of the ring, goes to the Spanish announce table and pulls out a pair of handcuffs and cuffs Hawk to the ring post. It's even funnier because referee Jim Corderas, it took him like two minutes to notice that Hawk wasn't just standing outside the ring with his hands around the ring post. Like the some bitch is literally handcuffed to the ring post there, ref. Come on there, dude. So Hawk is left handcuffed to the ring post, leaving Animal, bad back and all, to try to fight off both outlaws. And he's able to hang on for a while, including catching Billy Gunn, diving off the top rope for a pretty scary-looking power slam because he kind of under-rotated on it a little bit. The Road Dog, finally saying enough of this garbage, runs in with a steel chair, slams it across the back of Animal. There's your DQ. This match is over. The Road Warriors win it, and then 7.52 again via disqualification. The Outlaws keep the tag titles. So they continue to beat on Animal with the chair. Hawk is still cuffed to the post and fighting as hard as he can until he finally kind of hulks out, breaks the cuffs, and snaps them off the ring post, takes out both outlaws, drops Road Dog with an unprotected, just dirty chair shot to the head, and that would be far from the last time during this pay-per-view someone would take a kill shot right to the dome piece. They finally get the outlaws out of there, animals laid out, but the Legion of Doom does not leave with the tag belts. That would come a little bit further down the line for them. Now, earlier I mentioned that WWF was giving away that truck that Stone Cold pulled up to the arena in. Well, they announced the winner. And unlike last year at SummerSlam, where I talked about that giveaway they were doing for the million dollars and you had Todd Pettengill on his last night in the company. You had Todd Pettengill and Sable and Sonny and the phone calls and all that BS. None of that happened this time. It was straightforward. It was Mildred Bowers of Nashville, Tennessee. Jim Ross announced it at the announce table. They kept it quick and to the point. And here's a funny side note that you can follow up on. Google Mildred Bowers Stone Cold. And likely one of the first things you'll see is a link to a YouTube video showing this lady actually driving around in the Stone Cold Steve Austin pickup truck. It's actually kind of a cool footnote to look back 20 years and see this old lady and her grandson tooling around in a truck that says 100% pure whoop ass. And speaking of pure whoop ass, coming up after the break, it's really what you're here for. The 1998 Royal Rumble. Start to finish, laying it out there. We're talking about everything from unprotected chair shots to bodies all over the place to three appearances by one guy. And of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin winning the Royal Rumble. 
My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the Retro Review of the 1998 Royal Rumble, better known as Episode 66 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast, because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon, and what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right. Looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Oh, what's the mandible claw? Hey! And mankind has a mandible claw on the artist formerly known as Goldust. That's Dude Love against mankind. I've always wanted to see the. Maybe catch the second referee. Until after this rumble, Jim, someone told me the other day at the airport, Steve, if you think you can win the rumble, give me a hell yeah, and I give a oh hell This is the Retro Review of the 1998 Royal Rumble, episode 66 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Jay Scott Smith here. Welcome back, damn it. 
We're in segment three of the show. You know these retro reviews tend to be the longest shows we do, but damn it, it's worth it all the way. Remember, want to support the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Radio. Want to big up my man Doc Illingsworth. He produced the beat you hear underneath you right now. I want to shout out my man Rufio Jones. Doc Ills produced the song Nigerian King. And I will put a link to the video up on the Twitter feed, which of course is at JSC Radio. You have to see how ridiculous this fool is in this video. So shouts out to all of them. Of course, want to say, got to check out the Patreon page. Need it now more than ever. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Want to shout out the other podcast fam out there. Big ups to all my people over there at Spaces Productions. Shout out to y'all. That's an entire network. Okay, that's an entire network of black podcasts doing the right thing. So be sure to hit up Spaces Productions. You can follow them on Twitter at Spaces Philly. They do a lot of great shit. They have podcasts, web series, documentaries. They do everything. So be sure to check out Spaces Philly. I want to shout out my boy Mark and everybody over at Spaces. You guys support the hell out of the show, and I greatly appreciate it. So we have now made it to the match that is the namesake of the whole damn pay-per-view. The 1998 Royal Rumble. And as I had mentioned repeatedly throughout this thing, this is basically the Steve Austin invitation. He was labeled the marked man because of he's basically, you know, he's pissed off every single guy on the damn roster, top to bottom. Just every single one of them. He's just, he's, he's stunned them. He's gotten in their faces. He's antagonized them. And now here we go. I mean, the, the video even shows it. He is dropping everyone with stunners. He's been doing it since SummerSlam. He was doing it before then, and it's just outrageous. Well, we've made it to the Royal Rumble. And ideally, every one of these guys could get a shot at Austin, depending on when he comes into the match. But before we get going on this, we get one more look at the Tyson Skybox with Vince and Shane. Tyson, again, getting a lot of booze when he's shown on the overhead in the arena. But that was their big pull, was to get Mike Tyson on camera. He didn't have to be in the ring. He just kind of sat there watching. But damn it, it was Tyson night until now as we head to the ring for Howard Finkel as we get this whole thing set off. It is now time for the 1998 (laughs) Royal Rumble. In just a few moments, those individuals who drew numbers one and two respectively will enter the ring and the Rumble match begins. Every two minutes thereafter, another superstar enters the ring according to the number he drew. Elimination occurs in this contest when a superstar is thrown over the top rope and both feet much touch the floor. Both feet. The uh, individual who remains in the ring after all competitors have entered will be declared the winner of the Rumble match and will go on to WrestleMania 14 for a WWF Championship match. So yes, the Rumble is on and we are underway and the first two guys out are Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. Well, excuse me, it's Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie because you remember when Terry came back into the company in 97 he didn't want to come in as Terry Funk he wanted to come in under a new persona in which he put on a stocking over his face held a a unbladed chainsaw and called himself Chainsaw Charlie and he teamed up with Cactus Jack now these two guys Cactus Jack and Terry Funk of course had a legendary feud 
in Japan. Legendary matches in Japan. Just insanity between these two guys and all these death matches and hardcore matches across the country and across the world. Well, what would you expect from Cactus Jack, who had made his return to the company, actually made his debut in the company in September of 97, then as soon as they get in there, you have Funk coming down to the ring with a chainsaw, while you have Foley, who's already littered the ring with chairs and trash cans. So the first two guys are in there, and they're immediately, immediately getting hardcore. They both grab chairs and square off, slapping each other with chair shots across the side and across the back. The ch- and, and the real funny moment, one of the first funny moments of this match, when, when Cactus and uh, Terry are in there going at it, referee Jack Doan slides into the ring and grabs the chainsaw, which is still buzzing around in the middle of the ring. He slides in and gets the chainsaw out of there as these two guys are swinging steel all over the place. It was dangerous in there. Absolutely dangerous. And it showed you how dangerous this was. Now, I've talked about this on previous reviews. And I've talked about how much things have changed and how problematic a lot of things were in the WWF. Now, while the homophobia was shockingly turned down to very low levels in this pay-per-view, the unprotected chair shots to the head got turned way up, including a couple of these beauties that you might have noticed that I tweeted out on the Twitter feed at JSC Radio. I thought these guys were supposed to be friends, JR. It's every man for himself. Look, the Royal Rumble King. It's almost like chainsaw. Oh, oh my goodness. Good Lord, what a shot. Right to the cranium. That, that, he asked for it. He said, go ahead, give it to me. I think that might have knocked the funk out of him. Let's listen. He, he wants another one. Please give me another, sir. He's a nut. Oh, now they're gonna. Wait a minute. Oh, you talking about a nut? Look at this. Oh my God. So, folks, anywhere you slice it, the human anatomy was not constructed to take these shots to the head. Let's be honest about it. So, as this is happening, that Foley is just beating on Funk. Funk pulls up the mask, pulls up the stocking mask, and stands in front of Foley and says, give it to me. Like, just preps himself. It's almost blood-curdling to see him. It it, it was so distressing to see Terry kind of square himself up for this, Foley obliged, and just smashed him upside the head, as you heard there in the commentary. One must remember that Terry Funk was 53 years old at this point. Terry was not, he was no spring chicken. Terry was well past his quote-unquote prime here, getting rocked with chair shots in a Royal Rumble. But just to make sure he was not outdone, Foley, after smashing Terry once, hands Terry the chair and says, give it to me. As again, you heard in the audio, he gave it to him with a pair of unprotected, wide-ass open kill shots to the dome piece absolutely outrageous by this point we've now got the third man coming in and that would be tom brandy aka salvatore sincere one of those really bad gimmicks from 96 that kind of lingered well brandy didn't linger too long because he was immediately tossed out by foley and, and terry funk and they went right back on each other foley sets up two chairs suplexes terry funk onto them now he he set up the chairs where the seats were touching each other he set them up the correct way for the spot not the way that Alistair Black suplexed 
Adam Cole onto the tops of the chairs, the actual pointed parts of the chairs during NXT TakeOver. That was absolutely frightening. Then in at number four, the Intercontinental Champion, The Rock. He, should be noted, is going to be your Iron Man here. But he comes in at number four and immediately goes after Cactus Jack, which just one year from this point, Rock and Foley would have one of the more infamous WWF title matches ever held at the Royal Rumble. Real fun spot here where The Rock, as soon as he gets in there, is just getting pummeled by both Foley and Funk. And Foley sticks a trash can on top of Rock's head and commences to eating all sorts of chair shots. They're just pummeling him on the body. They're not going for the head. Just pummeling him on the body over and over again before finally falling through the middle rope just straight up eating it on the floor. He fell through the middle rope, so he was not out of the match. Coming in at number five is headbanger Mosh, who as he's coming down the aisle, Funk fires a chair at the guy, just barely missing him. In at number six is Phineas Godwin. At number seven is Eight Ball, one of the Harris brothers from DOA. Now, not long after Eight Ball gets in there, Cactus Jack essentially eliminates himself. He charges Terry Funk. Funk sees him coming, pulls down the top rope, and Cactus goes ass over tea kettle to the floor. He's out of here. He's the second elimination of the match. The crowd was really upset to see Cactus Jack go. It was kind of messed up, but I don't think people really got that they were not done with Mick Foley this particular evening. Now, right along this same time, Lawler is claiming that someone has gotten to Steve Austin, saying he's gotten word from one of his people in his headsets, which... I'm guessing at this point is either Kevin Dunn or Vince McMahon, that Steve Austin has been attacked in the back and will not be in the Royal Rumble. Meanwhile, in at number eight is Blackjack Bradshaw, better known to the world as JBL. That's right. It's John O'Clock, motherfuckers, at number eight here in the Royal Rumble. Number nine is Owen Hart, or it seemed it was going to be Owen Hart. So Owen was trying to get into the Royal Rumble because obviously the idea of Owen winning the Royal Rumble and perhaps facing Shawn Michaels for the world title could have been a pretty enticing idea if they had actually chosen to go with it. The problem is they didn't. And even Bruce Pritchard explained they just didn't seem to have room to have a real feud with Owen. But that's some other like, you know, I would say that's some other amateur booking that I probably would do on a phone call or on another person's show. Can't do that on the review. We got to keep shit moving. So Owen comes out to try to take his spot at number nine in the Rumble and gets attacked from behind randomly by Jeff Jarrett, who would return to the company during the fall himself and had brought along Jim Cornette. As you heard Jim Ross refer to Jim Cornette as, quote, the stain on the underwear of life. Owen would not enter the ring at this point. Jarrett would simply turn and walk away, but... Please understand, we're not done with Mr. Owen Hart from this point forward. In at number 10 is Steve Blackman, who had just joined the company prior to Survivor Series and made his debut at Survivor Series. He's the 10th man into the Rumble. 
Lawler claims that Shamrock is the guy who got the Stone Cold Steve Austin, by the way, as we later find out, that wasn't exactly true. D'Lo Brown comes in at number 11 from the Nation of Domination, which at this point, we now have two guys from the Nation of Domination entering the Royal Rumble. At this point, Terry Funk is still there. 53-year-old Terry Funk is still hanging around in this Rumble, and he's found a bunch of creative ways to keep his ass in the ring, including oftentimes getting flipped over the top rope and still having the leg strength to wrap himself into these ropes and not get shoved out or accidentally slip out of there. Now, I just mentioned that D'Lo had come into this thing. Oh, we're going rapid fire on this review. Now, I mentioned that D'Lo comes into this thing as a member of the Nation of Domination along with Rock. So you're thinking, okay, we got two guys in this group. We can at least kind of pair up. Nope, Rock and D'Lo start scrapping. Like, they're immediately in there. They square off, even as Nation members. They're squaring off in this damn thing. We move on to number 12, and that's Kurgan. You remember I talked about Kurgan briefly during the Survivor Series review. Kurgan from the Truth Commission is in at number 12, and it appeared that he was going to be kind of playing what would eventually be known as the Kane role in this Royal Rumble, where he would just go in and start tossing out dudes left and right. He immediately dumped out Mosh over the top rope. Actually, Mosh was, for some reason, on the top rope, actually trying to climb up there. Not a smart move. Kurgan dumped him out onto his ass. Number 13 is Mark Merrow. No sign of Jesus. Mark Merrow in at 13. Kurgan also tosses Steve Blackman, while The Rock is just wearing out D'Lo Brown here. In at number 14, the guy who should have been Intercontinental Champion, Ken Shamrock. Shamrock, still seething from having the Intercontinental title stolen from him, went right after Kurgan, took him down with a series of kicks before a group of five guys, including Shamrock, JBL, Phineas Godwin, 8-Ball, and The Rock, launched Kurgan out over the top rope. He lands on his feet, surprisingly, which is kind of nimble for a guy of that guy's size. And by the way, these days, Kurgan is no longer wrestling, but you've seen him in a ton of movies. I know I remember a few years ago, he showed up in the Sherlock Holmes movie as one of the villains in there. That guy is doing very well for himself. And from all accounts I've heard about Kurgan, he's an amazingly nice guy. For a dude that big and that mean and that nasty, it, it, you'd be amazed at how nice of a guy he actually is. So Kurgan is out. At number 15 is Headbanger Thrasher, his tag team partner already tossed by Kurgan. Funk is still out there, by the way, hanging on for dear life. And that should be of note because in at number 16 is Mankind. That's right, y'all. Mankind. Foley's second appearance of the night in the Royal Rumble. Foley got the idea to do this, and he ran it by Pat Patterson, because Pat Patterson is well-known as the guy who came up with the whole concept of the Royal Rumble 10 years earlier, and, and it's become maybe the most popular, to me, it's the most popular event of the WWF slash WWE calendar. Well, Foley pitched the idea of having all three faces of Foley into the 
into the battle royal, and he loved it. Mankind hits the ring and immediately goes after Terry Funk, eliminating him pretty damn quickly. Funk lasts 33 minutes in this Royal Rumble. Shamrock finally is able to get over to Rock after getting screwed out of the championship. And just in enough time as number 17, Goldust enters wearing an entirely different outfit. Remember, I, I made a point of this earlier. Goldust had blue hair that didn't match his green and purple outfit. Now he comes out in a silver number with a spiked bra attached to it. He was going full weirdo at this point out here. He's out there with new face paint, this weird outfit, and immediately takes out Mankind. So Foley's second trip into the Rumble was a hell of a lot shorter than his first trip into the Rumble, and it was just in time for number 18, Jeff Jarrett, to come in. But Jarrett, who just calmly saunters into the ring, thinking he'd taken out Owen Hart, which again, can't really figure out what his deal with Owen was, but he soon knew he had a deal with Owen, because by the time he got into the ring, Owen comes streaking in, chases him down, beats him down. Remember, Owen never enters the match, so he is eligible to jump into the ring. Owen jumps him in the ring, skins the cat when Jarrett tries to sidestep him and toss him out, flips back into the ring, catches Jarrett, and launches him out, just as number 19... The Honky Tonk Man makes his way into the match. Yes, the Honky Tonk Man, who a couple of months earlier was managing the guy who would become badass Billy Gunn. The man who was Intercontinental Champion 10 years prior to this is into just his second Royal Rumble as Triple H and China are following him down the aisle. No, he wasn't replacing Triple H. No, Triple H was not trying to recruit Honky Tonk Man. Triple H was there to stir up shit with Owen Hart. So as Honky hits the ring, Rock hits Shamrock with a low blow and eliminates him. So twice in one night, The Rock screws over Ken Shamrock. Meanwhile, in another part of the ring, as Owen is trying to get rid of Goldust, China swings one of Triple H's crutches at him. Triple H was on crutches because he had sustained a knee injury. China swings one of the crutches at Owen, who catches it, but Triple H sneaks up from the other side and slaps him upside the head with the other one, and he and China pull Owen out to the floor with a little assist from Goldust. Triple H then hits him three more damn times with the crutches. So this thing has already kind of started to break down and devolve into a total mess and a total shit show, as every Royal Rumble basically should. So twice in one night, Owen Hart gets himself eliminated from a Royal Rumble, and this time he heads out to the floor just in time for number 20, Ahmed Johnson, to make his appearance, what would be his final appearance in a Royal Rumble. Ahmed, who just two years earlier was one of the hottest names in the company. He was legit one of the top guys in this company just two years prior, coming out of 1995, heading into 1996. Ahmed was a big ass deal. He had been a big ass deal all through 95. Well, now he just simply had a big ass because he came out and he looked in absolutely terrible shape. It seemed like he was basically coming back off of yet another injury. Both of his knees are totally wrapped up. He's got a do-rag on and big-ass hoop earrings, something that seemed to really bother Jim Ross as he came through there. He was overweight, and he just looked awful. At number 21 was Mark Henry. Mark comes out there, now making it three nation members in the Battle Royal, and he immediately goes right at Ahmed Johnson and helps out the Rock and D'Lo, throwing powder in Ahmed's eyes like it's 1978 in Memphis. Again, absolutely love this. And then out at number 22 is a nobody. Hey, did you see that? Ahmed got, got powder in his eyes there. From what? Don't stand up, JR. It won't be often. 
That's right. Nobody comes out. The horn goes. Nobody comes out. And all of a sudden, the speculation comes from Ross and Lawler that that must have been Austin's spot as the rumors of Austin being taken out by Ken Shamrock or somebody were apparently proven to be true. So as they're trying to figure this out, Ahmed gets dumped out by Mark and D'Lo. Mark then tosses Phineas Godwin out of the match as well. And in a really kind of scary looking spot, Jack Doan, who was trying to help Ahmed Johnson, gets drilled by Phineas, who comes flying over the top rope. Doan gets a, gets a concussion. He's out of here along with these other two guys. Ahmed finally gets to his feet and immediately starts fighting with Phineas Godwin on his way to the back. And he was taking his sweet time getting to the back as number 23... Kama Mustafa, better known as the Godfather, comes out and he immediately shoves Ahmed out of the way as Ahmed is walking up the ramp as Godfather is coming in. And that didn't look like one of those storyline shoves. That looked like one of those, these two got legit heat with each other shoves. And it was often actually spoken, by the way. I've heard interviews with with Ron Simmons. He's talked about it, how he and Ahmed Johnson and that whole nation group did not get along like for realsies. Like there was real beef between between Ron and Ahmed. So this sort of thing probably wasn't just simply a storyline deal where Kama shoves Ahmed Johnson like, nah, bruh, they got real heat here. So in comes the Godfather. Four of the five nation guys are in, and he goes right after D'Lo Brown. All these guys in the match at the time, he goes right after D'Lo Brown. So 23 is the Godfather. He's busy fighting D'Lo. There's bodies all over the place, and in at number 24. Uh, that's the truth. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin comes in through the crowd, sneaking up from behind, and he just goes wild as soon as he hits the match. By far the loudest pop of the night was when Austin comes in. He immediately takes out Marrow and 8-Ball. Austin was putting hands on everybody as number 25 comes in. Number 25 is Henry Godwin, the other half of the Godwins, and he comes in full redneck regalia, including a Confederate flag t-shirt. Again, while they toned down the homophobia, they kept the racism just pushing through the roof in this damn thing. And Henry Godwin goes right after Austin because Henry Godwin was one of the victims of Stone Cold Steve Austin along the way. It made total sense as he pounded on him. And things got a little worse for Steve Austin because in at number 26 is Savio Vega. And Savio decided that he wasn't going to come alone. He brought all three of the Bariquas with him and they jump Austin in the middle of the ring. They went right at him. So meanwhile, at this point as well, you have Rock and Bradshaw working as the Iron Men. So they're continuing to fight and battle their way through here. Austin has fought his way through the Bariquas, sending all three out to the floor before finally getting dumped out onto the floor through the middle rope. So, of course, he's able to stay in there. Rock goes out through the middle rope. Again, he stays in. At number 27, you have Farouk. So all five members of the damn nation are in the match at the same time. And as soon as he gets in there, he goes right after The Rock and D'Lo Brown because, naturally, none of this shit is supposed to make any damn sense whatsoever. Dude Love, the third face of Foley, pops in at number 28. And we're getting right down to the nitty-gritty. Who's number 28? The luck of the draw has everything. 
anything to do with this. Completing the trifecta, three, one man making three appearances in one Royal Rumble at the same damn time. All of this is going on. In comes Dude Love. He immediately takes out Bradshaw, who was one of the Iron Men in the damn match. Rock hits the people's elbow on D'Lo. Yes, it was called the people's elbow at this point, but it, why of all the guys are you hitting it on a nation member? I get it's every man for themselves, but when there's that many other dudes in the ring and there's five of you... Come on now, they always say black people can't stick together, black people can't come together. Well, well, God damn it, you get five black folks in the ring and we can't even work together. They all fighting each other. It gets on my damn nerves. Number 29 is Chains from the DOA. Farouk accidentally tosses D'Lo out. And at number 30 is Vader, who opened the night against Goldust. Vader comes in, immediately tosses out the honky-tonk man to finally get that old, that old fossil out of the ring. Thrasher and Godfather get launched out by Austin. After working, after working Henry Godwin over, he tosses out Savio. Seconds later, Goldust took out Vader to exact some revenge for earlier in the night. Then Henry Godwin goes flying out, trying to take out Foley. Chains tosses Goldust as the ring has magically thinned out as we're down now to six guys. Well, now five guys because Austin takes out Chains. And then Farouk takes out Mark Henry. Again, more nation-on-nation issues and we now have our final four in the ring. The Rock, Farouk, Dude Love, Mick Foley, and Steve Austin. Austin and Foley briefly work together, and it is noted by Ross that these two guys were World Tag Team Champions together that previous summer, so they're able to work together for a second before Austin attacks Mick. Mick reverses Austin into a mandible claw, but Austin gets out of it by using a low blow. He breaks that hold, Farouk takes out Dude Love, Foley was eliminated for the third time in the night. He lasted barely 12 minutes combined on his three trips. But now we're down to the final three guys in the Royal Rumble. Ron Simmons, The Rock, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Farouk immediately goes for Austin, pounding on him in the corner while Rock initially stands up, but then decides to literally take a seat in the opposite corner and just watch. And as Farouk stands up on the apron trying to choke out Austin, he sneaks up behind Farouk, that would be Rock, sneaks up behind Farouk and tosses him over the top rope, leading to the final two men in the ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. You think that these two guys were probably going to have a little bit of a future together, that this would not be the last time that Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock would be closing out a big-time match at a pay-per-view. So Austin and The Rock square up and square off, with Austin initially tossing Rock over after Rock missed a clothesline. He tossed Rock over, but Rock lands on the apron, rolls back into the ring, and this is how it ends. Austin hits the stunner on Rock, then immediately deposits him over the top rope, out to the floor, to finish off the Royal Rumble and pick up the victory. The winner of the 1998 Royal Rumble is Stone Cold Steve Austin in 55 minutes and 25 seconds. 
Austin led all participants, eliminating seven guys. The Rock was the Iron Man of the match, going 51 minutes and 32 seconds out of a possible 55-25. It was the type of match that established Austin, who was already the man. It was pretty much the rocket was fully strapped onto him. Meanwhile, for The Rock, it was one of those moments where that dude was already good. He'd been IC champ. He'd started to get over. Just to simply be in that position, Rock went out and got himself made that night. He got himself made. He didn't realize it at the time, but he got himself made. Loudest pop of the night by a mile. Places going absolutely insane. And where else do we go after a big moment like this? But up to the skybox where Michael Cole is standing by with one Michael Uglacius Tyson. Oh, what a hell of a rumble matchup! Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Cole is standing by with Iron Mike. JR, I'm here with Iron Mike Tyson. What did you think of the Royal Rumble match? What do you think of Stone Cold? Intense, man. Cold Stone is my man. He won. I, you know, man, I won a fortune. I'm going to celebrate tonight. And no one believed that he could win. I'm just happy, man. What, what about the upcoming championship match between The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels? Your pick. That's going to be tough because I've been a great fan of The Undertaker for many years. Shawn Michaels, a young up-and-coming hungry tiger, and I'm looking forward to the match, man. All right, that's Iron Mike Tyson back to ringside. Now, I know Stone Cold won the damn Royal Rumble, but apparently Mike Tyson was jonesing for some ice cream talking about Cold Stone. It's silly, it's funny, and of course it's fitting because, as we'll get to at the end of this thing, the following night, Tyson and Austin have their own lovely interaction that we'll get into a little bit later on. But coming up after this break, we get to the main event. It was the rare instance, like this year was the rare time where the Royal Rumble did not close the show, at least in this case, the men's Rumble did not close the show. And coming up after this break, we'll look at the world title match, the casket match between HBK, Shawn Michaels, and The Undertaker, which featured what appeared to be an innocuous moment that ended up changing the course of the entire damn business. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the Retro Review of the 1998 Royal Rumble, Episode 66 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. So, you know, I'm a dog, and I'm kind of new to this family, but I've noticed a trend. My humans do this thing where they go around and get all my toys and hide them in this basket, but it's always the same basket, and it's always the same place, and then they act so surprised when I find them, but I'm like, hello, that's where you put it last time. Humans are the worst at hide-and-go-seek. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. The American Red Cross urgently needs blood and platelet donations and asks donors to schedule an appointment to give now. Your blood donation matters to the patients counting on life-saving transfusions. Visit redcrossblood.org. This is JSC Radio. Assuming has the Undertaker contained in it. 
basket looks awfully familiar. Wait a minute. It's the same casket from last week that they uh, <laughs> disrespected, desecrated. Oh, Good words. I'm begging for a little originality here. So are we. I think we have to have three guesses to guess uh, now who's inside the casket. Okay. Now, sorry, folks, but uh, I thought Triple H in China could do a little bit better than this. I mean, this is what I did last week. Okay, Hunter, China. You're real funny. Ooh, I'm scared. Boogie, 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 boogie. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, look. Oh, look at that. There's Hunter China up on the stage. Well, who's... There, then, 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 who's in the, who's in the casket? Oh, it's the Undertaker! The Undertaker! The Undertaker's got Shawn Michaels! He's in he's taking that casket! Oh my gosh, we're inside the casket! This is the retro review of the 1998 Royal Rumble, a.k.a. episode 66 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Jay Scott Smith here. Welcome back. Final segment of this long edition of the show. I've been promising you all this for more than a month. I'm happy to finally have the time to be able to do it. I'm not getting up stupid early in the morning. I'm not wasting everybody else's time doing needless things. I'm actually able to do something I enjoy, and that's bringing this shit to you. I want to thank each and every one of you who supports the show on, of course, jscottsmith.com. I want to thank you for following me on Instagram, at jscottsmith, for following me on the Twitter machine, at jscottsmith. I am verified. I am also on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. You can follow the show on Twitter at JSC Radio, and you can get at me on any of your favorite podcast providers, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play or, or Audio Boom or anything other than Spotify, and I'm working on getting on damn Spotify. So just keep it locked right here as we try to make this show pop and get bigger and better and more and more out there. Now, a little footnote to the 1998 Royal Rumble. I forgot to note that, if you recall, at number 22, nobody came out, and it was assumed that it was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, earlier in the show, and I guess I didn't mention this, Los Boricuas was roaming around looking for Stone Cold Steve Austin, and they stormed into a locker room and jumped a bald guy that they thought was Austin. It turned out that guy was Skull from DOA, The other Harris brother gets laid out in the locker room. He was supposed to be number 22 into the Rumble. Instead, it was nobody. Austin was number 24, and Austin went on to win the entire damn thing. So that ties up that little loose end. I forgot to mention that heading into the break, that number 22 was Skull from the Disciples of Apocalypse, who got taken out by a bunch of very angry Puerto Ricans earlier in the evening. We've now made our way to the main event of the evening. The casket match for the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship between champion Shawn Michaels and the former champion, The Undertaker. This beef actually goes back. Everything still seems to tie very nicely into SummerSlam from last year. Well, the previous year. 
I did the review on SummerSlam last year. It ties in nicely to that because, as you recall, Brett won the title when Shawn Michaels, who was the special guest referee in set world title match, blasted The Undertaker upside the head with an unprotected chair shot, knocked him smooth out, and then he was forced to count the three or else he was going to get booted from the company. So everything was just went to shit for The Undertaker. And he basically had had a blood, just death feud with Shawn Michaels to try to pay him back for costing him the world championship. Well, along the way, these two guys had the first Hell in a Cell match. It was magnificent. Go back on the WWE Network, where you can also watch this Royal Rumble. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. Go to the WWE Network and look up Bad Blood 1997. And that is the original original hell in a cell match between the undertaker and Shawn michaels it is one of the greatest matches ever held it is by far the best match ever held on an in your house pay-per-view it is absolutely magnificent and along the way as we mentioned earlier it was the night that kane got introduced to the world kane who had been rumored for months made his first appearance he ends up laying out the undertaker with a tombstone michaels wins becomes the de facto number one contender goes to survivor series and we all know what happened we rehashed that to start this review but now we're here we're at the royal rumble that michaels as you heard on the uh, on the little break coming in here on the little intro to this segment michaels had been just tormenting and antagonizing the undertaker for about a month at this point before taker had finally had enough of his shit got a hold of him, and that brings us to San Jose. Along the way as well, and it's noted in the video on the run-up to this thing, if you're watching this on the network, that the week before the Rumble, Kane came out to rescue The Undertaker from DX, possibly signaling that Kane would actually turn babyface and help his brother win the world title in an apparent early partnership of the duo that would eventually be known as the Brothers of Destruction. Well, we head to the ring now to the legendary Howard Finkel as he introduces the participants in the World Wrestling Federation Championship match. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest is a casket match for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Are you ready? And he always turns it on during these Now, just a little footnote here of the three different championship matches that were held this night. 
all three of the champions came out first. Now, I understand with The Undertaker's entrance, you kind of want to have Taker come out last for the full body of the of the intimidating intro. But still, all the champions coming out last is just it makes my eye twitch. And this was also an, inter- an interesting point in time in the WWF, which has always been traditionally a babyface type of territory, at least in terms of its world champions. At the current moment, at least at that point, in early 1998, all the champions were heels. The Rock was a heel. Michaels was a heel. Tag team champs, the Outlaws, were heels. Triple H was the European champ. Guess what? He was a damn heel, too. They were all heels at the time. So that's an interesting little footnote. And speaking of heels, you have Shawn Michaels, and this was peak shit heel Shawn Michaels here absolute peak he was the worst he's two months removed from Montreal he's feeling all this heat from the crowd he's one of the biggest damn heels in the damn world and he knew it Taker as you heard there comes out to a massive pop maybe the second biggest one of the night next to Steve Austin's and the match opens with Michaels hitting quick punches on Taker and trying to run away trying to keep the fight moving this was a point where Undertaker and Sean legit did not like each other. This would be a long way from what we would eventually see more than a decade later at WrestleMania where these two guys are both grizzled, grown veterans who have grown to respect each other and they have one of the all-time great matches of any event at any place at any time. But not long into this match is the moment where the entire game changes. Michaels has been trying to do the stick and move routine, but Undertaker finally catches him and attempts to press slam him into the casket. Michaels slips out, bounces in off the ropes, and tries to hit a cross body where Taker catches him, but stumbles a little bit too far back. And I guess what he was attempting to do was try to backdrop him over the top rope, either over the casket or onto the top of it. But with the stumble, he kind of lost his footing, and it was a bad angle, and he tips Michaels over the top rope, And he tries to over-rotate and overcompensate to clear the damn thing. And instead, he happens to just kind of catch his back against the edge of the casket on the way down. At regular speed, it looks like he just barely even glanced his back off of the edge. But in slow-mo, he did manage to catch just the wrong part of his back against a very sharp corner of the casket. Undertaker, manhandling. He's got to put him in that casket. Michael's in. Missed. Michael's backdrop on that big old wooden casket. Now, again, if you were to see this, and people have seen this, this bump a thousand times, it didn't look like anything special. It would turn out that this particular bump where he goes over the top rope and clips that casket would end up putting him out of the game for four years and drastically altering the course of where the company was going to go. So, again, at full speed, it didn't look that bad, but he got it pretty flush. Taker took control of the match from here, slamming HBK on the floor. Again, you have to understand what had just happened here. Slams him on the floor and then kicks him into the casket, but immediately Michaels leaps out of it. Michaels, by his own admission, in his book, after he suffered this injury, during the match, it didn't bother him at all. He just kind of treated it as, oh, well, I kind of bumped my back and I'm just going to keep going. He didn't think anything else of it. It wasn't until the next day that it jumped up and bit him. Michaels began to favor his back, but he was still a bumping machine in this whole damn thing. Back in the ring, Taker catches Sean for a power slam and then calls for the casket to be open. Hebner pulls it open. He rolls Michaels in, but Michaels was able to get his hands up and keep 
the damn thing from closing. So he's not able to close up the casket. He forces the casket open and magically inside the casket was a handful of powder that he then throws in Undertaker's eyes. It's the second powder spot inside of like 30 minutes on this show. And he used it to get back control in the match, but is quickly, once again, overtaken by the Undertaker. Out onto the floor they go once again and Taker gets reversed into the steps and for the first time HBK really has control. He picks up these heavy steps and hits Taker twice, visibly selling his back each time. HBK then gets Taker up for a pile driver on the steps, showing an amazing amount of strength and balance here to pull this off. While down, Triple H then hobbles on over with a crutch and jams it into Undertaker's throat. They finally got in control of this and by the way, no DQ match in a casket match. Might want to keep note of that, too. Michaels then moves Takers toward the casket, gets him in, but before he can close the lid, Undertaker fights out. He punches Michaels back over the top into the ring, then punches out Triple H as a bit of a receipt for him jamming that crutch into his throat. He gets back into the ring, and HBK catches Taker in a sleeper hold. The sleeper hold lingers a little longer than it should, but Taker's able to suplex his way out. He sits up, but HBK ends up answering with a flying forearm, followed by the top rope elbow. He then lines him up and drills him with the super kick. Hebner opens up the casket and Taker gets rolled in. It looks like Michaels is going to be able to win this on his own, but before he decides to just shut the lid and end the thing, he wants to set up and strike a pose on top of the damn casket, lines it up for the DX crotch chop, and that's when Taker reaches up and gets a handful of the planter's peanuts. That's right, grabbed him right by the schwanz, right in the middle of the crowd to a huge reaction, and threw HBK back over the top rope and into the ring by using his balls. Taker fires up, throws HBK all over the ring, misses on a clothesline, and lands in the casket. Michaels follows with an elbow drop from the top rope into the casket. Amazing looking spot here, but the lid now closes and both men are inside of it. HBK tries to climb out of it and get away from Undertaker, but he gets dragged back in horror movie style. And it's actually an iconic shot that you would see for years in a lot of WWF programming. The casket opens again and Taker punches Michaels who heads out of the casket ass over tea kettle one more time back in the ring hbk ducks the big boot but gets caught with a massive choke slam big one hand choke slam taker then grabs hbk pulls him over to the apron and delivers a tombstone into the casket he tombstoned him into the casket down he goes and just as he does this china drills earl hebner from behind knocking him out just shoving him right into the ring steps so he can't close the lid and into the ring come the outlaws. The New Age outlaws hit the ring followed by Savio and the Boricuas in a scene very reminiscent of the 1994 Royal Rumble casket match where it took 10 guys to help Yokozuna shove the Undertaker into the damn casket to get the win. But just as it seemed, or as it looked, as if The Undertaker was cooked again, just like he was in 1994, the cavalry arrives. They're ganging up on The Undertaker! DX all the way! Six men are pounding The Undertaker into oblivion! And remember, there's no disqualifications! Oh my God, it may be Kane! It is Kane! It's Kane! He's coming to help his brother! All hell is going to break loose! The lights go out, 
and here comes Kane. Now you got to understand, obviously today in the WWE, they no longer they no longer like to use pyro because amazingly a company that's worth billions of dollars just can't seem to afford to put, put off a few fireworks or let off a little fire once in a blue moon at a show. But when the Kane entrance first started, that Kane entrance was it was right on par with the Undertaker's for how cool and how Really unnerving the whole damn thing is. Kane hits the ring, presumably to help Undertaker, gets in there, takes out the Outlaws and the Boricuas. And just as it looked as if Kane was going to help the Undertaker shut the lid on Michaels and finish the whole damn thing off, Kane signals as if he's going to make the fire pop out of the ring post. The fire didn't actually go off. And then he lays out the Undertaker, drags him to the apron, and choke slams him into the casket. Kane has saved his big brother. We thought it might happen. Taker is down and out. DX shuts the lid on top of him, and that finishes it off. The Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels, in 20 minutes, 30 seconds, retains the World Wrestling Federation Championship, winning the casket match, and then getting the hell out of Dodge as soon as the damn thing ends. The bell never rang, by the way, but it was already declared that HBK won the match because the lid shut, so that whole thing was over. But what wasn't over was the post-match activities. Paul Bearer was on his way down to the ring off camera as all this is going on. He joins Kane just after he throws him into the casket and they wheel the casket down to the entrance. Kane then walks away and returns holding an axe and a can of gasoline. He gets on top of the casket, commences to chopping it up into pieces, left and right, just smashing it with this gigantic pickaxe, gets down off the top of the casket, grabs the gasoline, and you didn't need Elon Musk to show you what the hell was going to happen next here. What are they doing? At, what is that? Is that gasoline? I don't know what it is. It, it, it smells like gasoline. What are they trying to do? They're, they could not be that heinous. Kane and Paul Bear could not. No way. Oh, come on. Come on now. Come on. The matches to Kane, and my God, the casket's on fire! The casket's on fire! Kane and Paul Bearer light a match, toss it onto the casket, setting the whole damn thing on fire, and the pay-per-view just ends rather abruptly. It just cuts off. That's the end of the 1998 Royal Rumble. So what did we learn from all this? Well, Stone Cold Steve Austin is now on the fast track to WrestleMania, the road to WrestleMania, as they call it now. And he's on his way to basically being coronated and crowned in the era of Austin beginning at WrestleMania 14. As for Shawn Michaels, he would find out the next day that he suffered a 
devastating back injury. But they needed to get to WrestleMania with him as champion so they can at least get the belt off him to Austin for a true coronation of things. And yes, they found out that this was a legit injury and not a losing my smile situation as he had the year before. That's where being the boy who cried wolf and being a known bullshitter runs you into trouble. Most people would have believed Sean off rip if he hadn't essentially faked an injury to avoid dropping the title the year before. The Undertaker and Kane were off to have their whole thing because now that finally gave Taker something to do, get him away from Michaels, away from the championship, everything else. And you then have The Rock, who went to the very end of the Royal Rumble. He still got a very angry, ragey Ken Shamrock looming in the background. And they're heading into, as I mentioned earlier, what would be the biggest year that pro wrestling had ever seen. With two companies at their absolute peak power going one-on-one with each other. There was also this little detail of what would happen the following night. On Monday Night Raw. We've all seen it. At some point, it's one of those iconic WWF slash pro wrestling moments. It's one of those nights that the people at WCW, like Eric Bischoff, kind of noted was the beginning of the true comeback of the WWF. It was the moment when Steve Austin and Mike Tyson met nose to nose in the ring. And needless to say, it was it was classic. Austin comes down, gets in Mike Tyson's face. Cuts one of the all-time great smart-ass promos on him. I respect what you've done, Mike. But you're out here calling yourself the baddest man on the planet. Right now, you got your little beady eyes locked on the eyes of the world's toughest son of a bitch. I could beat you any day of the week. Twice on Sunday. Do I think I do I think you could beat my ass? Hell no. Do I think I could beat your ass? Why hell yeah? I don't know how good your hearing is, but if you don't understand what I'm saying, I always got a little bit of sign language. So here's to ya. And even after all this, where he flips the bird in Tyson's face, Tyson shoves him, they get to scrap him. Apparently, Tyson had thousands of dollars in his pocket and it's scattered all over the ring. So while half the people are trying to get Tyson off of Austin, the other half is trying to pick up all those Ben Franklins that are spraying all over the ring. And I still will always remember Vince McMahon's reaction. I, I will always remember Vince's reaction as they're trying to get Austin out of the ring. This always stuck with me. You ruined it, damn it, you ruined it. I've used that line in so many cases, but just joking around with people the last 20 years. It's just so damn good. Coming up in April, the next retro review will be, I guess, to close out the four-part series of this section of retro reviews that started with SummerSlam last year. The next retro review will be WrestleMania 14, the 20th anniversary of the night Stone Cold Steve Austin became the man. 
My name is Jay Scott Smith, and I want to thank you so much for taking this ride with me on this retro review. I do these for the wrestling fans. I do these for the people who just like to reminisce and get nostalgic on you. And most of all, I do it because it's fun. And honestly, the better part of the last two and a half years, this has been the most fun I've had is getting on here and doing this with you. And I enjoy it. And I'm happy that for the time being, I'm going to have a lot more time to be able to work on these things and really get some of the best shit I can out to you. So take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. Remember, adopt, don't buy. And we are out of here. For the Patreon fam, I might just have a special commentary coming on what occurred in Parkland, Florida. But for now, goodbye, everybody. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online. For like a year, she couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.